First, how to read uh, this book. Although Exodus is concerned with historical events of extreme importance to Israel, it is not written in the style of a modern history book. The New Bible Dictionary says that the chronological setting is given only in general terms consistent with the Hebrew treatment of history as a series of events, a series of events and not a sequence of dates. That's important to know in terms of understanding how to read the book. It is a series of events. The book is filled with events. It tells a story. It is a narrative, which is a story. When we use the word narrative, we mean a story. And that's what Exodus is, and that's how it should be read, and that's how it should be seen. The dates are less important. The central message of Exodus is God's grace toward Israel. God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. We find that in the book. Miraculously saved them from the Egyptian army, led them through the Red Sea, and established a covenant with them at Sinai, Mount Sinai. As with Genesis, and indeed every book of the Bible, we should be less concerned with historical details. Now, this is important. Not only... uh, friends, as we look at Exodus, but as you participate in this entire course, this Old Testament survey course, that you understand that these books, and Exodus is no exception, should be read not with a preoccupation with historical details, but rather with an interest in God's revelation of his purpose for us. Alan Cole, who wrote a commentary on Exodus, which was part of the Tyndale Old Testament commentary, writes this, and I quote Professor Cole, that there are problems in Exodus. Not even the most conservative of scholars would wish to deny. But many of them are geographic or historical, and few of them, if any, affect the theological message of the book. That's very important. For example, Professor Cole says this, We do not know how long Israel was in Egypt. We do not know the exact date of the Exodus, nor the route that Israel took, nor even the exact site of Mount Sinai. Yet not one of these affects the main theological issue, and therefore we must not allow them to loom too large in our thinking. It is not essential that we know the numbers or the route or the date of the Exodus. It is enough. We're later Israel. But we know and believe that such an event happened, and that we, too, interpret it as a saving act of God. Now, Exodus tells us that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who was introduced to us, and these other these characters, uh, seminal characters in the Old Testament, introduced to us in the book of Genesis, was also the God of Moses. The God who led his people through the Red Sea. God fulfills his purpose through his historical acts. The Exodus was a critical event in his plan of redemption. We also learn from Exodus that God is all-powerful. Nobody can successfully oppose him. For example, one pharaoh attempted to thwart God's purpose for Israel by trying to drown all the Israelite baby boys. God used these circumstances to enable his chosen servant Moses to receive otherwise unobtainable training in Pharaoh's own court. The ways of God. How God had his hand upon Moses from the time he was born. We see God's providential hand. We see his hand of protection, not only over the life of one great leader that God has raised up, but we see his hand upon an entire people, upon an entire nation. And that is clear from the beginning of Exodus until the conclusion of chapter 40. Later, another Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let the Israelites go free. God simply used this stubbornness, as we shall see later in the study, 
as the stage on which he revealed himself through a series of miracles to be Israel's all-powerful Savior. And then thirdly, God is concerned for his people. We see that in the book of Exodus as another uh, great theme. God protected the Israelites from the Egyptians. He provided manna for them. He fed them. He guided them. And he gave them victory over the Amalekites. And, of course, Exodus also foreshadows Christ's sacrificial act of redemption for his people. And we're going to see that when we get to uh, the Passover. Now, note this, if you would. And, again, I see several of you taking notes. Uh, Quite frankly, if I was going to come out at 8 o'clock, I mean, and you are indeed the chosen of God to be here at 8 a.m. to do a... uh, uh, a, a, oh, honey, I can't wait to set the alarm for 7 a.m. We've got to get there for the study on Exodus. What? Yeah, so, uh, but I mean, I admire this. This is a tremendous perseverance we see in it. I didn't know how many people were going to be here. But I noticed that there were no traffic cops out there directing traffic, and I said, well, uh, that's a sign right there. But there is a good-sized group here, and uh, so you... But if I was going to make that effort to get up and come to church at 8 a.m. for study of Exodus, I'd bring a notepad. Because I know that that these people, uh, Walter and Jack and uh, the professor from Dallas, are going to be going over one book in an entire class, and I'm not going to really capture much of it if I just try to retain it all. So uh, I see several of you taking notes, but this is what I want you to note if you want to write this down. Uh, Note this. Exodus is a Latin word derived from the Greek exodos, E-X-O-D-O-S. That is the name given to the book by those who translated it into Greek. Now, what does Exodus mean? Note this. The word means exit, departure. In the colloquial term of today, getting on out of here. That's what Exodus. We see the signs that say exit up there. So when you see the sign exit, you think exit, exodus, leaving, departing. That's a good way to remember even if you're not taking notes this morning. Exit. Exodus, okay? That's what it means. Exit, departure. The name was retained by the Latin Vulgate, by the Jewish author Philo, who was a contemporary of Christ, and by the Syriac version. In Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, the book is named after its first two words, Welahe Shemoth. These are the names of, is what that means. I am undoubtedly massacring the Hebrew, and I never took Hebrew. And you're supposed to pronounce these words from the throat, like like you're going to. Well, anyway, that that's that's how you're supposed to pronounce them. Well, it has Shemoth, the name that the, the same phrase occurs in Genesis 46:8. These are the names of. That's interesting. Where it likewise introduces a list of the names of those Israelites who went to Egypt with Jacob. That's what it says in Genesis. Now that's key to understanding Exodus. Because one of the things you need to remember is that Exodus is a continuation. It, it means departure, but it's a continuation of the book of Genesis. And so it is not to be read in isolation, but it is part of Genesis. And the first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses, and they are referred to as the Pentateuch. You'll see that in your study Bible. The first five books of the Old Testament were written by Moses, we believe, and are come under the, uh, the rubric name of the Pentateuch. That's the five, that includes all five books. So Exodus is a continuation of Genesis, and that's very important. And so when we read in Genesis 46, 8, that these were the names of the Israelites who went to Egypt with Jacob, we remember that the last story, one of the very last accounts, if not the last account in the book of Genesis, is the story of Joseph, which goes on for several chapters. And it talks about how Joseph was sold into slavery. Now, I'm not here. Walter covered all of that, so I don't want to get sidetracked. But I, 
I do want to note this, that the fact that God, not Joseph's brothers, that's another theological discussion. That matter of fact, that's more for a sermon than it is for a lesson. God was the one who brought Joseph to Egypt, not Joseph's brothers. Do you remember when Joseph told his brothers, you meant to do me harm, but God brought me here for a purpose. That's a Wyman paraphrase. But that's what he said. It has worked out to good, not evil, that you intended against me. And so he forgave his brothers. But Jacob, I mean, uh, Joseph is in Egypt. And then, of course, uh, Joseph brings his family. And so we see the Israelites coming to Egypt. And that's where they are when Exodus opens up. So, again, the last part of Genesis is really an introduction to the first part of Exodus. And there the Israelites are in Egypt, and they've been taken in to slavery. But here is the, here is the key thing. The account of Joseph's adventurous life is recorded in the closing chapters of Genesis. But this is why and how the Israelites first located in Egypt. And you need to know that. Joseph was a highly regarded, wise, and just ruler in Egypt. And, of course, the family came there. Why? Anybody remember? What was the, I mean, other than to be with uh, Jacob's favorite son, what was the other practical imperative that drove them to Egypt? The famine. There was a famine in the land, and so uh, Joseph, you remember, had very wisely made provision and interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and there they were, and they, had all, they were all set for the famine. And so Jacob says, hey, Joseph's there, and there's also something to eat. So they all went down to Egypt. And Joseph became a ruler in Egypt, and he was treated nearly as a son by the Pharaoh who trusted him completely. But knows Exodus 1.8. Here's a verse you want to write down. Exodus chapter 1 and verse 8. Here's what it says, and it is pivotal, really, to the unfolding of the story. Exodus 1.8 says, Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power. So, what began as an amiable relocation and a simulation into Egyptian society under a young Jewish man who became revered as a ruler of Egypt. After Joseph passed from the scene after he died, other rulers came to power in Egypt who had no regard for Joseph, his memory, his acts, his contributions, or his leadership. And that's important because now we begin to see the relationship change between the Egyptian rulers and the people of Israel, who are now multiplying rapidly in the land of Egypt. So, does any of this make sense? It does, because it is the unfolding of God's plan of redemption. But God cannot redeem or deliver people if they're already free. The first thing he has to do is bring them into slavery. And so, Exodus 1.8 is pivotal. It's a little verse, but it's key. Then the king came to power, who did not know Joseph. And the people of Israel were put into slavery. And, of course, that's the, the, one of the major themes and, uh, of the narrative in Exodus is the people of Israel, the Jewish people, uh, in slavery. This begins the remarkable and thrilling story of the enslavement and subsequent deliverance of the Israelites. Now, what are the themes of, of the book? The book of Exodus is the story of God's compassionate and sovereign deliverance and leadership of his chosen people. Now, bear with me because uh, I am a layman, and I wrote this myself. 
So uh, I have to put that disclaimer down at the bottom. So if you're kind of reading this, like this is something that we got from, uh, you know, uh, Professor Charles Schultz, uh, who wrote the Old Testament uh, history book uh, Professor Schultz did, uh, then uh, uh, you, you'd be sadly uh, let down. But this is how I see it. The book of Exodus is the story of God's compassionate and sovereign deliverance and leadership of his chosen people, Israel, through God's chosen leader, Moses. That's really what it is about. Plain, simple, non-technical language. This book, the book of Exodus, reveals God's majesty, his holiness, his power, his purpose, and his plan. No single verse in the entire book of Exodus more beautifully illustrates its central theme of revealing the nature and ways of God than the words that we find in the joyful, triumphant song of the Israelites immediately following their miraculous passage through the Red Sea. Where is that? Write it down, Exodus 15:11. Exodus 15:11, and here's what Exodus 15:11 says. And if you, if you were to say to me, now the professors might disagree, and that's fine. As a matter of fact, some of the commentaries I looked at disagreed with me, and that's fine. But uh, being uh, being presumptuous enough to challenge them, I say, well, I'm I'm not sure that if I was to take one verse. For me, that touched my heart as to what Exodus is all about, that that would be it. wouldn't be about the Red Sea or slavery or even God calling Moses out of the burning bush as exciting as important. It wouldn't be the Ten Commandments as important and obviously pivotal to world history as that is. All of these things extremely important. But it would be this one verse. And this is what the Israelites said after God delivered them through the Red Sea. Exodus 15:11. Who... Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. That's it. That encapsulates everything from the first verse of Exodus to the last verse of Exodus chapter 40. God's holiness, his glory, his wonder-working power, his miracles. As a matter of fact, note this. Exodus contains more miracles than any other book in the Old Testament. More miracles recorded in the book of Exodus than anywhere else in the Old Testament. In Exodus, we discover, number one, God's name, his attributes, his redemption, his law, and how he is to be worshipped. We make that discovery in Exodus. We also discover profound insights, secondly, profound insights into the nature of God. You might, when I take notes, rather than, than, than just write out the whole thing that the professor's trying to say, you might just want to catch a phrase and write that down and then fill it in later. Because if I talk slowly enough, unless you all take shorthand, I know I sure don't, uh, we'd be here a long, long time just getting through these five things. And so what I embolden here in number two is the nature of God. Just write down nature of God. Profound insights into the nature of God, the importance of his presence, his justice, his truthfulness, his mercy, his faithfulness, and his holiness. We see all of these in spades in the book of Exodus. 
It's a discovery that we make in this book. Number three, we discover that God rules in history. That indeed, all of history is his story. It's God's story. That's what history is. And we discover that in Exodus. Number four, we discover that God has a peculiar relationship with Israel. Now, without chasing a rabbit trail, which we have absolutely no time for this morning, I will just say this, that there continues to be debate whether God still is centering his plan around the nation of Israel or with the advent of the church of Jesus Christ, the church becomes the spiritual Israel and Israel is no longer a chosen nation. I've often asked the trained theologians, why do we have an either-or choice here? Well, why is it that the church has to supplant Israel, and that means that Israel is no longer the centerpiece of God's history? If you read the Dallas Morning News tomorrow morning, and I haven't even seen it, you know, I don't, I don't work for the publisher. But if you read the Dallas Morning News tomorrow, I would be willing to bet that there's a 50-50 chance that you'll find a story somewhere in there about Israel from the Middle East. It, it, to me, it is common sense and it is self-evident that Israel continues to be at the centerpiece of world history. Part of our engagement in Iraq has to do, at least indirectly, with the nation of Israel. Israel being affected by that. If Israel became a state in 1948, took over, regained the territory of Jerusalem in 1967, Israel continues to be uh, just a key nation in America's foreign policy, and that becomes increasingly controversial. You know, people are critical of the neoconservatives, and they're uh, almost what, the, what is charged anyway by the critics as the blind allegiance of the neoconservatives to the nation of Israel, to the state of Israel. And uh, there, are, there are other criticisms. So, but Israel continued to be the centerpiece. I mean, that's my view. But, but clearly in Exodus, we see that God establishes this special relationship, and that is incontrovertible. That is beyond controversy. There is no debate on that point. That in Exodus, one of the things we discover is that God has a peculiar relationship with Israel. And I added these words, that many believe continues to this day. Number five, God's moral law, his rules for personal conduct, and the basis of all civil and judicial law and government, we discover that in Exodus. He establishes his moral law, and I want to get into that before we close this morning. And then number five, the wonder and beauty of God's salvation, his redemption of Israel and of all his chosen people, that is so beautifully illustrated in the Passover, which is a key account found in the book of Exodus. Now, Jack Wyman's greatest hits. Here we go. Get ready, because we only have uh, about, uh, let's see, about 19, 18 and a half more minutes. Number one, greatest hits. This is one of the things now, your assignment, your homework assignment. Did Walter give you any homework? Yeah, well, that's why you like him. And, uh, but hey, what, uh, but I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I'm going to give you a homework This week... This week, what I want you to do is I want you to pick one of these and go home and read it. Continuing your, uh, your homework, self-study of Exodus. God calls Moses out of the burning bush. God calls Moses out of the burning bush. That is found in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Exodus 3, 1 through 10. A familiar account. When God asked Moses, or excuse me, when Moses asked God how he should answer those who inquire about the one who sent him, God responds, does anyone remember? He says what? God immediately says from the burning bush, this bush that's on fire and the fire doesn't go out and the bush is not consumed. And Boy, right there you got my attention. I mean, I love this account because I'm trying to think physically how this might have been, what this might have been like. You know, you see all the pictures and of course, you know, you see in the movie, The Ten Commandments, you know, we own that. 
See, I mean, that's my commentary on Exodus. Cecil B. DeMille's book. Uh, no, I'm only kidding. But uh, do you remember? What did, he, what did God say? Go ahead, Patty. Speak right up. We all can hear. I am that I am. Or as NIV puts it, I am who I am. You tell them, this is what you are to say to the Israelites who ask you, who has sent you? Say, I am has sent me to you. Now, this is interesting. John chapter 8, when Jesus told the Pharisees that when they said, we have Abraham as our father, Jesus said, before Abraham was, this is, this is for your cult people that come to your door with their little literature and their uh, crisp shirts and ties. This is what you tell them. Jesus said, because some of them, they say, well, Jesus was a son of God, but he wasn't really God. I mean, that's a major cult tenant of all the cults. They believe Jesus was a good prophet, a great man, great teacher. He was a son of God. He did many miracles and so forth and so forth. But he wasn't really God. Jesus said to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, what? I am. Not I was. I am. And that is the same I am that we find when God speaks to Moses and says, I am that I am. Jesus invokes that. And they nearly stone him because they know what that means. They know that Jesus is, in fact, laying claim to being God. Before Abraham was, I am. I asked the JWs that came to my home, I said, what is that? They said, it's a misprint. I said, well, I, I, I can't. I got, you got me there. Yeah, it was not in their Bible, by the way. I am. Before Abraham was, I am. This passage in Exodus 3 reveals the sense Moses has of his own inadequacy and counters with the promise of sufficiency from the God of the universe who says in chapter 3, verse 12, Moses, I will be with you. I will be with you, Moses. Key passage, okay? One of my favorite accounts. Another favorite account that I have is the plagues of Egypt that we find. Write this down. The plagues of Egypt, chapter 7, verse 6, all the way through chapter 11, verse 10. We find the plagues of Egypt. There are ten plagues recorded. I'm not going to go over all of them because time does not allow it. But know that there are ten recorded, and they illustrate the stubbornness and arrogance of Pharaoh. And I love that part. The courageous persistence of Moses, and I love that part. And most of all, and this is the part I love the most, the power and glory of God. If you read the plagues, you see that God is the God of nature, that he controls the universe, that he controls the creation that he made, and he controls it, and he uses it to bring plagues, whether it's hail or lice or frogs or the water turning to blood. These are all exhibitions. These are all demonstrations of the power and the glory of God. So that's why this is one of my favorite passages in the book of Exodus. God tells Moses what to say to Pharaoh in chapter 7, verse 16. Then say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go, so that they may worship me in the desert. I like that. That they may worship me out in the desert. But until now, you have not listened. This is what the Lord says. By this will you know that I am the Lord. Exodus is filled with declarations like that. Gosh, and I get goosebumps. I get goosebumps. I mean, that's just one of them. Thousands of reasons I love the Word of God. It is so declarative and so revealing of the power and glory and majesty of the one who made us, to whom all of us must someday give account. By this, 
You will know that I am the Lord, Pharaoh. And you know, in the in the movie, even Charlton Heston couldn't convince Yul Brenner. You know, I mean, that wasn't what did it. Now, if Charlton Heston, dressed like Moses, can't convince you when he's got the rod there and he's doing miracles to let the people go, then you're a pretty stubborn, arrogant guy. And Yul Brenner, who was perfectly cast as Pharaoh, uh, basically said, "No way." But Moses tells Pharaoh the words of God. By this will you know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. Wow. And it was. I wish I could have been there and seen that. What I wanted to see, what I would like to see other than water turning into blood and going through the river, that would be cool. But uh, the next thing I'd want to look at is Pharaoh's face when that happened. I'd like to see the look on his face when that happened, okay? Through these plagues culminating in the death of the firstborn of Egypt, God exhibits his glory and majestic power over the universe he's created and indeed over the Pharaoh and over his government. Great hits number three. We're getting there. Only five of them. The Passover. This is found in chapter 12, verses 1 through 28. Write it down. The Passover, 12, 1 through 28. In this wonderful passage, God provides a deliverance from death for the people of Israel. A means, the only means, the only way, the only provision to escape the curse of death that he has decreed upon the nation of Egypt. The firstborn son of every family in Egypt would die. But God told Moses to take year-old male lambs, and he says, without defect. They had to be perfect. Without defect. Kill them and put some of their blood on the sides and tops of the door frames of your houses. Then God tells Moses in verse 13 of Exodus chapter 12. And I love this. Gosh, this is, wow. I, I get excited. You've seen that ad on there. I don't know what that ad is and everybody's saying wow. you seen that one? Some little boy is dribbling basketball around uh, O'Neal, and he says, wow. Well, I guess none of you have watched the ad. I, I, I thought of that, and I thought of it. That's what I say when I was preparing this lesson. I said, wow. Wow. Listen to this. This is what God says to Moses. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. Get ready. You ready for this? And when I see the blood... When I, God says, when I see the blood, when I see it, I will pass over you. Wow. But I must see the blood. I must see it. The blood's important. The blood is key. Someone told me a daughter doesn't go to church because she doesn't like to see a cross. It reminds her of violence. Here's what we are in danger of doing, folks. We are in danger of a bloodless faith because it offends too many people. It offends the masses, and obviously we want to fill the churches so we don't have crosses. We don't remind people of the great sacrifice that was made. Oh, someone told my parents one time, as a member of Congregational Church, I couldn't go to a Baptist church. They believe in a bloody religion. I don't believe in a bloody religion. Not for me. God said, when I see the blood, and only when I see the blood, 
on the doorpost, and it must be the blood of a perfect year old male lamb. Not some old lamb, but a yearling that perfect without defect, God specifically says. Then and only then, when I see the blood, will I pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt, God tells Moses. And so not only did Israel forever celebrate Passover from that night forward, as God spared their firstborn, but Christians also embraced the Jewish sacred holiday as a rich symbol of the death of Jesus Christ for the world. Paul says in his first letter to the Corinthians in the fifth chapter and the seventh verse, Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What did John say? When Jesus came to him to be baptized. You remember? Behold. What? Who? Hey, the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. The Passover Lamb, Paul calls him. He takes away. So you see the, the rich correlation between the deliverance of the firstborn when they when they killed the little baby lambs and put the blood on the, over the sides and over the top of the door and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That is one of the richest connections and correlations between the book of Exodus and the New Testament theology that, that I know of. It's the Passover. Paul said in Romans 6, the wages of the curse of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. John Foote wrote in the 19th, in the 19th century, a song that pays tribute to the Passover sacrifice of our Lord and our Redeemer, the Lamb of God. And maybe when you were a child, maybe when you were a child, you sang this in church. But it goes like this. Christ, our Redeemer, died on the cross. Died for the sinner, paid all his due. Sprinkle your soul with the blood of the Lamb, and I will pass, will pass over you. When I see the blood, remember that? When I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass, I will pass, what? Over you. See, that's right from Exodus. That's from Exodus. So you can't study Exodus without seeing the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Our Passover lamb. That's why I put it, it had to be on Jack Wyman's five greatest hits in Exodus. And we see the crossing of the Red Sea. The crossing of the Red Sea. When the Egyptian army hotly pursued the Israelites, God intentionally leads his chosen ones to the shores of the Red Sea. There was a more practical route of escape, and one would be tempted to think God a poor navigator, though he has majestically and faithfully led Israel by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But it is to reveal the greatness of his power and deliverance that he has led the people to the Red Sea, where there is no escape. And if you read that account when you get home, and by the way, that, excuse me, that is found in Exodus chapter 13, verse 17, through Exodus chapter 15, verse 21. If you want to write that down. Exodus 13, 17 through 15, 21. The people cry out to Moses, their leader, as they see the encroaching Egyptians. Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? They ask him in typical human fashion. They complained a lot in the, out there in the wilderness, by the way, and that's another 
theological and uh, narrative study, but uh, we don't have time for that. You could, it wasn't a greatest hit for me, but the people of Israel complained constantly. It was kind of like this all the time. When things were going great for them, they were right on top of the world, and the minute they started running into adversity, they started whining and complaining. They were just like your kids. That's, that, that's, and, that, and that's the way God looked at them. Furthermore, that's the way Moses looked at them. Moses got fed up with them. He told God, he said, maybe it would be better just to wipe them all out and let me go home. How, do, how about that, God? Why don't we do that? Because I'm sick and tired of this whining and complaining. I can't take it anymore. And poor Moses. I mean, you know, you think W's got it rough. I mean, if Moses, they were they were on Moses' case all the time. All the time. And they were telling him, they said, well, we should have been back there in Egypt. That's where things were better. Well, they forgot that they were making bricks without straw. They, for, they conveniently forgot all of those things. Uh, that they their children were dying under the weight of these things and they were being slaughtered and all the rest. They totally forgot all of that stuff and, and they were just complaining. But they told Moses, they said there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert. And then Moses, in a scene dramatically portrayed on film in Cecil B. DeMille's Hollywood epic, answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance that the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians that you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Exodus 14:13. if you want to know where that verse is. The 13th verse of Exodus chapter 14. And then God responds to Moses, tell the Israelites to move on. I'm reading from the NIV. Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff. Stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through on dry ground. There was not one miracle. There were two that day. At least two. Probably more, but two that are prominent. One is he, he opened up the waters of the Red Sea. Now, obviously, I can't even begin to imagine what that was like, but needless to say, I wish I was at that one too. And the second, that's the first miracle. Second miracle was what, Bill? Well, the fire held them back. Okay, miracle three. But what was the other one? Dry ground. The Israelites will go through on dry ground. I didn't get caught in the mud. If you drain Lake Louisville, it's going to be mud. There was no mud. The children of Israel would not get stuck because they were going to go through on dry ground. The Red Sea was parted, then they went through, and the ground was completely dry. Then God revealed his purpose for his unexpected navigation. You say, oh, God, well, you made a mistake. You, got the, you led the people down here, and now they're caught in a trap. This is what he said, and I love this. I will gain glory. I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army. I will gain glory through his chariots and his horsemen. And then he says this. The Egyptians will know that I am God. And there's a scene where Hugh Brenner returns after having lost his entire army. He himself didn't perish, but he comes back alone to his wife, who didn't think he was much of a man for not standing up to Moses. In the movie now. This isn't, don't find this in Exodus. But I still like it because I think it fits right in with this verse. The old Brenner doesn't say much to his wife, to Mrs. Pharaoh. She starts chiding him. She says, where's Moses? Where are the Israelites? And they come back alone. Where's the army? <laughs> and the old Brenner sits on his stone and he says this. Their God is God. Their God is God. Is God. And then uh, I've got, uh, oh boy, i got one more. Give me a couple minutes. Here's the final one, the Ten Commandments. 
The Ten Commandments is found, are found in chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. The Ten Commandments, chapter 21 through 17. You couldn't really, uh, just let me get through this very quickly. I promise. Let me just read it. In Exodus, God sets forth his law. It is amazing that these Ten Commandments given to Moses on tablets of stone at the summit of Mount Sinai form not only the basis of biblical ethics and personal conduct for all time and in every culture, but also are the foundation of all civil law throughout history. Civilization's judicial code begins at Sinai. That's what I wrote down. Civilization's judicial code begins at Mount Sinai. All the laws of Texas, all the laws passed in Washington, D.C., all the laws of every state capital in the country based on the Ten Commandments. Based on the Ten Remember the controversy of the judge that wanted the Ten Commandments put on the wall? Because he said this is, the, this is the basis of our whole legal code. The first four commandments address man's relationship with God. The next six address man's relationship with men. If you want to look at the Ten Commandments and memorize them, they're found in chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. God's legal system has three parts. Note this. Number one, the Ten Commandments. Those are the absolutes of spiritual and moral life. Number two, I hope you can write fast, the civil law. Okay, the Ten Commandments, number one. Number two, the civil law, practical rules for to govern life. And number three, the ceremonial law, the purpose and nature of worship and holiness. In fact, that's a good segue into the final six chapters of Exodus because they address the important task of building the tabernacle, the guidelines for construction and the actual erection and dedication of the tabernacle, the prayer of dedication by Moses, underscoring the supreme significance that God placed and still places on proper worship. So here's the summary, and with this I close. I wrote this summary for this study today. Exodus tells the story of God's dealings with his chosen people, Israel. It is the continuation of God's special plan and purpose for this small nation that was divinely destined to become great among all the nations of the world. It begins with slavery and the call of a leader, continues through the miraculous redemption and deliverance of the enslaved people, and then concludes with the establishment of the law of worship and the confirmation of the special relationship God would have with this particular nation. Oh, Israel, though you be small among the nations, yet you are my chosen Throughout this exciting Old Testament narrative, God is revealed as the sovereign ruler of nature and of men, and he displays time and again his patience, his salvation, his mercy, and his tender care and compassion. He shows in Exodus that he is indeed a God of might and miracles, as the song says. Thank you very much. God bless you.